You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca, your host for a veteran story on AmericasWebRadio.com. My guest today, Jeff Dick Bickerton, is much like yours truly. We were both addicted to aviation from uh, early childhood. As a matter of fact, we both trained on the little Cessna 150, a great little trainer, but as we matured, so did the aircraft that we flew. In Vietnam, Dick served as a crew chief on the Canadian-built U-1A Otter, one of the unsung, invaluable aircraft of the Vietnam War. Dick, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Pete. I'm honored to be here, and I've read some of your books and some of these stories, and uh, uh, I, I sometimes feel I'm not in the same league as these guys uh, that, and, and ladies that you've interviewed. But thanks well, for having uh, me. Yes, sir. Dick, you most certainly are. Uh, like I tell everybody, hey, you made it out of boot camp. you got a story to tell. Dick, <laughs> <laughs> right. you're... Uh, we're going to start out with where you were born and raised, but your childhood, at sometimes exciting and sometimes uh, uh, sad, is a very unusual story. So, so take the ball and run with it. Where are you born and raised? And tell us a little bit about your childhood. Well, I was uh, born in New York, Queens, New York, and uh, uh, from great parents, uh, Gloria and David Bickerton. And uh, Gloria came from had a, a brother and a sister, and, and uh, David had one sister. And it's important that her name was Claire, and Claire Bickerton, and my mother and David's sister were great friends, so Gloria and Claire. And they, they hung out, and they were models and business women in, in New York City. Uh, and, and occasionally they would take the train up to West Point and... Uh, go to dances up there and uh, Claire Claire met uh, her husband Andy up there and Andy Evans and that's relevant later on in my uh, youth but uh, and uh, my my mother uh, my mother Gloria married David so that's how it started they were very productive in the early years and had children and especially after the war, and uh, Andy and Claire had four children, uh, Jay, Dick, Susu, and uh, Kathy, and, and uh, of course, my mother had, at that time, three children, my older brother Steve, myself, and my younger sister. And uh, <clears throat> first things I remember was when my father came to me we lived in Queens Village, New York, on the, on the island, Queens, and we went, he called me upstairs to go see my mother. She was laying in bed, and she said, uh, and he, she and he told me that she was very sick, and what had happened is she got polio, and she was pregnant with my youngest brother, and we, of course, at polio, you didn't understand I didn't understand what it was, and no one had any idea how bad it was going to be. But uh, we eventually uh, had to split up the family because she was in such bad shape 
and literally they took out a train on a on a railroad uh, on the train going uh, took out a window on a train going up to Buffalo University of Buffalo had a polio ward and they put her put her through the window because she couldn't walk and uh, took her up to Buffalo and that's where she was and we were we were sort of I, I would say we were farmed out to different relatives I stayed and my brother and I stayed with uh, my grandmother for a while short short amount of time I can't remember the timing, but we eventually went down to Alabama to Maxwell Air Force Base and lived with uh, the Evanses. That was my that was Claire Claire Bickerton's husband. Jay, uh, Andy Andy Evans was just back from Korea, and he uh, uh, he was a prisoner of war there. The, senior most prisoner of war because he was also an ace in World War II. He flew the P-51 and he, he was also a, un, a wing commander in, in Korea and was shot down and he was finally after really a tough POW stand, he was released and I, I'm telling you it had to be within, he was very thin when he got back and we, we he took three kids into his house my older brother Steve myself and my sister Terry and it was it was incredible so we had seven kids living in the officers quarters <laughs> down at Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama but for a young six or seven year old I can't remember exactly how old I was but uh, having uh, expanded family and I uh, Dick Evans, my, his, uh, one of the sons, was my age, and we hung out all the time, had great times together. Still, still are, consider them as my brothers and sisters. And uh, we stayed down there until they were transferred. Of course, the Air Force, you never stay in one place for a while. Andy, Andy recovered his strength and his and his uh, physique and everything like that and was uh, he was a pilot of course and they had jets taken off and they had golf courses and swimming pools i never wanted to go back i to new york i <laughs> i thought this was this was the place to be so uh that sort of set the stage for me uh, as far as my uh, childhood was concerned they wonderful people they treated me great they of course they when they were transferred they, my folks had to find some other place for me and my brothers, and we went in different directions. I wound up going to my father's army buddy in Indiana. He had a son my age and a sister, and and uh, I stayed out there for a couple of years. It was they were just awesome people, and uh, it just set me up to say I don't really want to live in New York. It's not my, my not my style. I. I want to out out where you could be free. A lot of <laughs> people are saying that in New York now too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, so so we were separated and eventually got the family back together in my final year of grammar school and then four years of high school. I went uh, in high high school, Andrew Jackson High School in Queens. That hey, was a Dick, shock. I'm gonna, Dick, I'm going to back you up just a minute because yeah. 
we have several generations that don't even know about polio, and they don't even know about the iron lung, which your mother had to use to survive. Tell us what the iron lung was and how long your mother had to be in this iron lung. An iron lung was uh, like a big tube with uh, like surgical inserts coming in from the side to, to somebody could reach in and help her and things like that on both sides, and it inflated the chest by with air pressure because the whole body was in it except for the head. So she was her head was laying on a, a pillow outside the iron lung. It, uh, it, it was incredible, I, and I don't, I don't know how long she was in it. It had to be years because her, her body was devastated. The other thing which is amazing is my younger brother, I mentioned she was pregnant. My younger brother was the first baby ever born in an iron lung. And, wow. and Lord only knows how that happened, but uh, had to be cesarean. Regardless, he, she, uh, he, he was in good health, didn't have polio, and he went and lived. He, he was given over to one of my aunts who he thought was... David thought uh, his Aunt Maud was his mother. I mean, he lived with him probably till he was six or seven. But uh, regardless, we, uh, we tried to get the family back together when, uh, when I was in grammar school. And my, my mother's saintly mother <laughs> remodeled her home, put a couple of bedrooms in, and uh, we all got back together in, in uh, St. Albans, New York. But... Uh, she, my mother was 13 years handicapped from polio. Eventually, could uh, could walk, and uh, but was always wheelchair ridden. She could walk a couple of steps, but she was it, it devastated her body. But her mind was incredible, and she and, raised. And she, and she uh, had limited ex, uh, use of her fingers, but yet she learned to type and type for newsletters. Is that correct? Right. She for the for the Buffalo. Uh, Buffalo Gazette or something like that, but it was a, a, about polio, all polio victims, and she typed. We were, the March of Dimes got us a uh, her a electronic one of the first electronic typewriters, and she, she her. It's hard to describe, but it had the wheelchair had bars that went out over it on bungee cords. The left hand couldn't do anything; just sat in a pouch off to the side I mean an elbow support and a hand support her right laid in a tray with a little um, pivot under her palm and it was on a bungee cord so she could type her finger the only thing she worked on her was her, was her fingers and a little bit of arm and shoulder motion that was the only thing that worked really well uh, so she could bounce up and down and type on the electric typewriter so she wrote for the paper I never could well, find that I went up to Buffalo one time as a salesman up there and uh, stopped by and see if anybody had any record of those papers, but uh, couldn't find it. It's probably on you know, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. God bless the polio vaccine. Holy you, cow. You bet. Uh, yeah. Okay. We are going to our first break, ladies and gentlemen. Stay with us. We're coming back to uh, discuss what uh, Vic did after high school. Stay with us. Hi. This is Rocky Blair former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes so 
soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from lawyers to citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, then the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised to right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you, David. We're back with uh, Bick Bickerton. Uh, Bick, tell us about what you did after high school. It seems I remember you said you walked around an airport somewhere. <laughs> I live pretty. We live pretty close to Kennedy Airport, so all those new things they call jets flying over, and I, I, I just wanted to be there because I didn't really want to stay and uh, didn't have money for college, so I had to go get a job. So I worked for my father in the, in the city, and I didn't want to during the summer in high school, and I didn't want that job at Bickerton Packing and Trucking Company, but he wanted me to work there. I didn't want to. I, I walked around the airport and luckily walked into United Airlines hangar area and uh, they had operations office out front and somehow wangled a job out of them and was a, got a clerk's job in the flight operations office. It, uh, it was really eye-opening as far as... Uh, aircraft, uh, flying uh, pilots. Back then, they called them stewardesses. Uh, it, it was a world I I really thrived in and wanted to be part of. So I uh, uh, so I started flying lessons after speaking with a pilot, trying to figure out how I could become a pilot. Uh, I I also saw the young women back then coming in to argue with crew scheduling about their schedules and and thought, uh, you know, this this was the age of, as I said, stewardess. They had to be young, single, personable, uh, beautiful, <laughs> kind, I don't know. But they also, this was the age of miniskirts. And my Lord, I, uh, I was a 19-year-old kid, and I, uh, I certainly appreciated that. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so I, so I, I put everything I could, every cent I made with United Airlines into flying lessons, and I got my private and was literally working on my commercial pilot's license when I already passed the, the written test and had about 20 more hours of flight time before I could qualify f- to, to get my commercial license. And... and uh, I, I received my draft notice, 
Now, my brother Steve, uh, about a year older than I was, uh, got his draft notice, and they took him down to the induction center at Whitehall Street in Manhattan and, and uh, said uh, when he was there with the big group, he said, anybody with the last name A, B, or C, step into this room. And there was a Marine drill sergeant, and he said, welcome to the Marines, boys. And uh, my brother was down in Paris Island that that night, and uh, he was not a Marine type. He was he was a much bigger person than I was, stronger and everything like that, but he was a bookworm. And so he was not a Marine material, but I, I got my draft notice, and I said, I don't want to be in the Marines. I want to stay around flying. And everything I checked out with the recruiter, uh, I was was about was would require four years. You know, if I went to OCS and became an officer and tried to get into flight school, they could they could guarantee anything. Then it was 1966. They were end of '96. They were building up the helicopter war. Warren officer school would get me probably two tours in a helicopter in Vietnam. So I joined as a uh, fixed-wing mechanic. Uh, I'd still have to give them three years, but uh, I wouldn't let them uh, induct me into the ground pounders or the legs, as uh, Airborne calls them. Uh, I, I just didn't want to uh, to do that, but I... So I, I joined as a mechanic, as I said, and and that required three years commitment. I wanted to get back to United, finish my commercial, and fly for them. They were they were actually hiring then. So I chose Army Aviation, and uh, it was uh, took a train down to uh, where did we go to. Uh, Fort Jackson, I think it was, down in South Carolina, then a bus down to Fort Gordon. I went through basic training down at Fort Gordon and uh, and didn't have any problem with basic training. I, I, I could handle it easily. I was in great shape. And uh, then I was sent off to Fort Rucker with some people. I actually, in basic training, I, I, was in, I felt so good about it, I volunteered for airborne ranger and all that stuff <laughs> thank god they didn't they didn't pay any attention to me so uh because they would have just changed my mos and put me in the infantry where i didn't want to be anyway but regardless i i uh i did go down to fort rucker the home of army aviation and i was trained as a single engine mechanic fixed wing mechanic and uh they were it, it, it was pretty easy for me. I was mechanically inclined, but I I ran across this one sergeant. Uh, I'll just call him Sergeant X. He was a I can't remember the name. I wish I could because I would have liked to talk to him now. But he, uh, he he really got on my nerves. He was a crazy. I thought he was crazy. Anyway, I didn't like him very much. Later on, uh, I received I, after. Rucker, I went off to Savannah, Hunter Army Airfield. We were the first Army people to arrive there. It was great because they had Air Force civilian cooks still working. But it had a great, it was a great place to work. They had a couple of, 
the Havilland beavers, and they were bringing in helicopters, and they had bird dogs and things like that, and spotter planes. Uh, I eventually, I was down there for a while, eventually got orders for Vietnam, which I didn't have to go because my brother was there. So he was already in the Marines over there. So I, I wound up, I wound up staying in Savannah while my unit went off to Vietnam. And I knew, of course, where they went and all of that stuff. I eventually got orders uh, and to go to Vietnam and uh, made a visit home, of course. And that took my time getting out there. The airlines were pretty. They were free. You could just fly anywhere you want. So I stopped in Chicago and Denver and went out. It was leaving out of Fort Lewis. But uh, I, I that was a, that was a good thing for me because I really enjoyed my time in Savannah. And uh, the funny part about it is that our, the military had a plan. The day I left Fort Lewis for Vietnam, uh, my brother landed in Travis in California, Travis Air Force Base in California, and it, the same day I took off. So they had it pretty pretty well timed. So I, I, and it just happened to be January. He just got through uh, uh, up by the DMZ, and I flew into Cameron Bay, which was on December 2nd, no, I'm sorry, Je- February 2nd, 1968. Yeah, that's if anybody knows about Vietnam, the, the Tet Offensive happened on the 1st, the evening of the 1st, <laughs> or the 30th or something. Uh, I mean, it was going on when I arrived at Cameron Bay and on a commercial airliner, and they hustled us off, and flares were in the sky over the bay and all that stuff, and they could hear artillery going off. It was... Surreal. I, I said, "Well, I guess this is what war is all about over here." <laughs> so uh, I wound up. Uh, the transit uh, barracks was just a, a crazy place because every they were trying to get rid of everybody as fast as they can get get them in. So I, I eventually got out of there by helicopter up to Nha Trang and one twenty three C one twenty three on up to uh, Quinyon, where and reported into the. 223rd Battalion uh, there who uh, and I walk into that place and who's sitting behind the desk is Sergeant X from (laughs) Dothan, Alabama and I'm going oh man this guy again but anyway he he remembered me very he was very nice and (laughs) all of a sudden he was like a human I don't know maybe this was his element or something but he uh he, he said, uh, Bickerton, we're uh, we're going to change your orders here. I see you're a pilot, and uh, uh, you know you got your license and all. We had did some small talk, talk, of course, and then he wound up. And I say, whoa, 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 Sergeant X, I I I'm fine. I want to go up to Bammy to it up there in the Highlands, uh, Highlands. Oh, that's where all my unit is all, and all my buddies are up there. No, you don't want to go up there. I said, yes, yes, I do. And he said, uh, he said, I know you think you do, but you don't. I want, we're going to take you, keep you here at the 18th Aviation Company. And they, they fly otters. And I said, I, I didn't even know what an otter was. And he said, uh, we're going to 
we're going to send you up to play coup. And you're going to train up there on the ramp to, to work on otters. And I go, oh, man, I don't... I was. I walked out of there. I was so pissed at Sergeant X. I'll tell you what. I would, if I knew it now, I would have given him a big hug, because <laughs> I've been, I've been into Bammy too. It, it wasn't any great place to be, especially in some of these, uh, some of these uh, uh, insurgencies that the VC were doing it back then. But regardless, uh, I wound up staying, staying with the 18th Aviation Company. Which is a super group, and uh, we I went uh, went up to play coup up to Camp Holloway in the Highlands, and uh, is it we had a platoon up there, and I worked on the ramp on the otters when they came in, and the crew chief showed me all how to do it and all that stuff. I was up there probably two or three weeks, and. Uh, some guy came into our tent, and we were staying over the Special Forces camp because that's who we served, the Fifth Special Forces. Uh, we, we flew them out to their camps and brought out supplies and all that kind of stuff along the Cambodian border. And uh, we were up at the camp, and I get this guy comes into the tent and says, "Hey, the captain wants to see you over the over his tent." So I I remember walking over there it was at night and opened back the tent flap and looked in and there was, uh, he said, come on in. And, and he was sitting there around a table with uh, another officer. And uh, I had hardly even met him, probably uh, probably a couple of times, but I didn't remember who he was. But uh, I walked in there and, and he said, well, I got some bad news for you. Your father has passed away. And... Um, he actually died of his first heart attack. So he, he, uh, of course, he was a smoker and a drinker like most people were back then. And my mother had already died a week before I graduated high school. Wow. So now I was didn't have anybody. So we were. So he said we're sending you home for thirty days, and he sent me, uh, me home, and uh, we arranged a funeral and everything for my father. But I also got to know my my uh, future wife, uh, who I only met about a week before I left for Vietnam, and uh, wound up getting to know her a lot better, and she helped me out a lot. And uh, it, it was it was it was good good to have some support from the home front. And yeah. we wound up living with my gra- grandmother. My grandmother uh, again took a took care of the kids and I wound up uh, going back to Vietnam for the second time and when I got, got back yeah Vic, they, I'm going to have to interrupt you for our second break great story uh, we'll get back to your going back to Vietnam after uh, taking care of your father and everything uh, folks we'll be right back stay with you if you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference consider joining the u.s army with training in fields like medical care linguistics and engineering an army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world plus you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits so you'll be taken care of too learn more at goarmy.com 
Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, then the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we're back with Vic. Uh, he had uh, left Vietnam for 30 days to uh, <clears throat> take care of his father after his father passed. Uh, he's back in Vietnam. And, Vic, you got assigned to Reliable 713. What in the world was Reliable 713? <laughs> that was a de Havilland otter that I, I took over to become the crew chief. Uh, crew chief is someone that flies with the plane every day, maintains it, does the weight and balance. I mean, you're you're literally. Uh, I became my own stewardess at with uh, seven three, but also the mechanic. Hey, you, didn't, you didn't have to wear a mini skirt, though, right? No, I, no. Okay. <laughs> Luckily, still wear boots. But regardless, I, uh, I, I, uh, Ted gave gave me his toolbox and showed me all around. That see, I I had been away. I had, they thought I was somebody must have thought I was still up in play too, learning about the otter. But I I had didn't really wasn't an expert in it at all. But I had to study the books and everything like that. But Ted Ted was a great help, the, the crew chief before me, and he was getting out of the army and. Uh, I wound up taking over uh, Reliable 713, and it was uh, really 58-1713. And our call, our call sign for the 18th Aviation was Reliable. So that's uh, when you talk to air traffic control or tower or anything like that, you, you were Reliable 713. But it, I, different, we'd go on different missions, and uh, almost every day we'd have some different pilots, some some uh, different pilots flying, uh, warrant officers. Sometimes we didn't have enough, and I got to fly right seat, which was a great thing. I eventually learned how one of the guys had his civilian instructor's rating, so he was able to write my logbook and give me some flight time and uh, and sign me off, as they say in the logbook. But I, I wound up uh, learning how to land it and do installs and... and uh, taken off and everything like that. But uh, I, we flew missions to support the 5th Special Forces in most cases, and then we had some other courier runs. Uh, but the uh, 5th Special Forces were headquartered in the Trang, and uh, also they had a regional court headquarters up in Pleiku. So I, I was sent to uh, the different platoons and did some different uh, courier runs and, and uh, 
that's what you usually start off with because they get kind of boring flying into the same place all the time. But then, then eventually, I became what they called a floater ship. They had me sort of based in Quinyon down by the coast. But when one of the planes from Pleiku would have to come in for maintenance, that's where our maintenance base was, Quinyon, uh, they'd fly down and I'd fly up there and take their spot. So I flew out of uh, Da Nang. I flew out of uh, uh, Pleiku, of course, and then also Natrang down the coast. And from Natrang, we went south toward Saigon, toward Canto, across the Delta, locked, locked in, and all those places. Um, uh, but well, made, made a lot of stops. Back up just a minute. Number one, uh, you had a very unusual assignment in Vietnam because most guys just got stuck in one corps. You know, like the Marines were in I Corps or maybe the River Rats down in the Delta. And that's all they knew. But you went to all four corps in Vietnam. That's very unusual. Uh, very unusual. But also explain what a reliable 713 is. Tell the folks exactly what an otter is. Okay. An otter, it was uh, uh, de Havilland made uh, utility aircraft for the Canadians. And... Uh, put them on floats and all that kind of thing. They made a beaver, which was very successful and still flies today. And then they made the bigger, its bigger brother, the Otter. It also made what they, a twin-engine aircraft called a Caribou. And that was there before we were, uh, that was flying for the Army before I got there. And uh, But the Otter was a, a large aircraft, could hand had a crew of three, could handle East comfortably 10 fully armed uh, soldiers with their full packs, everything like that, nine or 10, and then also um, carry cargo. Uh, the, feet, the seats would fold up, and you could double doors on the side, and the crew chief sat in the back by the double doors, had an open window, and, uh, the, of course, the crew up on the flight deck. But we uh, we carried everything you can think of uh, out to the special forces camps and uh, carried passengers, uh, transported um, the paymaster, the, the chaplains, uh, took back um, uh, dead dead uh, soldiers and uh, prisoners, all kinds of things. Anything you can think of, we carried. We carried. I can remember carrying sides of beef. Uh, bar stools, uh, believe it or not, they set up a, a bar under underground out at this, one of these special forces camps. I think it was Budop Special Forces Camp. And, I mean, we, we carried goats for the mountain yards and chickens. And, of course, they weren't loose, but regardless, they, all kinds of things. Anything you could load on an airplane, we could carry. And the beauty of a, an otter was that it could—it was a stole aircraft, S-T-O-L, short takeoff and landing. It was probably the premier small stole aircraft of its time uh, that could carry a load. The caribou was taken away from the Army just before I got there and was turned over to the Air Force. And the Air Force did a lot of missions, but the Special Forces 
was so <laughs> really upset that they lost the army support and uh we so we sort of were the main you know almost flying into some of these camps every day bringing supplies because some of them were out uh, you you wouldn't want to take some of the roads out to these uh remote locations so so they it was a support airplane and um we did some crazy flying into into uh, some of these places really dense jungles dirt runways all of that and um, I, I enjoyed seeing how the special forces did I mean most of them had uh, you know a perimeter a a um, barbed wire area full of mines and everything like that uh, they call it the wire and then out beyond that was was jungle and Cambodia were lobs and so and there were usually mountains around depending on where you were but uh, so it, it was dangerous country they I got to fly in one special forces camp at a mountain yard village which were the native so like the aborigines of Australia they were the native people they weren't yet they didn't consider themselves Vietnamese uh, and uh, worked with us quite a bit. They were real primitive people, wonderful people, wonderful people. And we, uh, I got to visit a special forces camp, I mean a, a mountain yard camp and meet the elders and all that kind of stuff. It, it was pretty cool. For a young young kid, I was 21 at that time when I was in Vietnam and uh, just turned 21. And it was a, it was a real education. I, uh, I'll tell you a story about flying into uh, a rubber tree plant one, one time, plantation, sorry, yeah. north of Saigon, out by Loch Ninh there, and, and we, uh, we, we had to pick up some, drop off and pick up some special, uh, an A-team, they called it, uh, a special forces guy, I guess one was replacing the other. And so we landed on dirt road, came over the trees and down onto an opening in the in the uh, rubber tree plantation. And there was a, a team of special forces sitting there on their equipment. And we all stopped, and uh, it was around lunchtime, and we all started talking as they unloaded and reloaded. And uh, it, it was it was an interesting time. They thought that we were pretty clear and we heard a helicopter coming and uh, all of a sudden out from under now we landed north south and east west out from under this road that cut across came out from under the trees came two helicopters one one, uh, one I think was a loach was a smaller helicopter and the other was a Huey and they flew right across the opening we landed in and went back in under the trees, and I, under, my mouth was under the trees, under the trees, under the trees, under the trees. I, I couldn't believe what I just saw, and and the, and I talked to one of the special forces guys. I said, Green Beret guy. He said, he said, I said, what did I just see? What I saw? He says, Oh yeah. He says, That's how they break in the new guys. <laughs> they're cowboys, <laughs> proving that they're cowboys. Holy mackerel. I, I just couldn't believe it. R rubber trees are huge. And if they're planted, for, if there's a road in, down between them, th there's 
there's plenty of room to uh, fly a helicopter just off the off the road. You know, have you know five feet off the road and and go scooting down. <laughs> but it just blew my mind. Uh, so that was that was some, one of the things I saw when I was there, and I just couldn't believe. Uh, well, tropical powers are not known to be uh, mentally sound. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't. <laughs> you just had to. Have, you just had to have a feel for the aircraft. You know, make it do what you wanted, and obviously, uh, those guys could do it. Uh, you were it taking was, off from from a dirt road at a, at a rubber tree plantation. So that otter, it had to, to take off and, and land in very limited space. What, how many feet? I, I'd, I'd say they, they took off, and I'm just generalizing. I, I'd say they took off, because I didn't have to be an expert in it. I just had to ride in it. But uh, they they get out in 1,000 feet and get up. In 1,300 feet, they could get up over a 50-foot tree. Uh, so... Uh, and landing, they could probably land in 600 to, depending on headwinds and everything. They they had a strong engine, about six, probably about 600 feet on a landing, because they could really drop the flaps and drop it, drop in there. But I'm telling you, these things uh, were incredible for its time. In this day and age, uh, you know, turbo props, reversible props, all of that kind of thing. You. you you could do better. Actually, there was a Swiss airplane. I think it was Swiss. The plot, uh, or something like that. It had a. It was a. The CIA was flying the uh, America, Air America, and they were flying these things. It, I'd see them all around different places. Yeah, that's my buddy. They okay. had right. a turbo. Vic, uh, I'm sorry, Vic. We got to go to our last break. You bet. We're going to get back and discuss maybe you taking some fire uh, on your aircraft, but also uh, your trip to Marble Mountain up in I-Corps and the Marines up there. Uh, folks, yeah, we'll yeah. be right back. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Hi. This is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. This is... 
This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion on America's Web Radio? Just email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll get back to you. Thank you. Okay, Vic, let's jump in that otter, crank up the engine. Let's fly up to, to Marble Mountain in I-Corps. Tell me about that day. That was uh, pretty good. I was just going to say that, that that airplane could get in and out of places uh, and because they had one of the reasons they had incredible flaps on them and a strong engine. So, But the trouble was you'd have to crank up the, the flaps to gain, start cruising. So you... You'd have to circle the airfield, so quite a bit. It wasn't one of these things that just blasted out of there and it was gone. So uh, we became a pretty a good target for anybody who wanted to shoot at us. <laughs> so we had a couple holes in my plane, and then uh, also uh, uh, some of the other guys uh, got hit pretty good with uh, uh, air, uh, any aircraft fire or or anybody shooting at us. But I, I one time was on a mission, and we we were up in Central Highlands, and we were finishing up in uh, we went up, went north of Contoon into Dakto and all that stuff, and then we kept going toward the northwest off toward Da Nang, and that's that was out by the coast. That was a good place to finish your day. Any time was to get over to the the coast, and we had a platoon up there at Marble Mountain Marine Air Airfield, just to the uh, just on the east side of uh, the beach side of Da Nang. And it was a very good base. I mean, a lot of Marine helicopters, and there were some Army units there, and we had our platoon there, which was about four. The platoon was about four otters and the crews and everything like that. But uh, I staying overnight, and someone had told me, probably one of the Special Forces guys, about, uh, about uh, smoking pot. And I, I was not a smoker at all, but I thought so. I went in there, and after the the crew, the officers went headed off. I, I took taxied over with the airplane and got some uh, uh, to get some fuel. And I could tell this guy was uh, was a, a, a I guess you call him a junkie now, but he was a head. And uh, he, you know, he had the beads around his neck and all this kind of thing. And, and the uh, Fu Manchu uh, uh, mustache. Anyway, he was fueling the plane. His name was—I think his name was Duke or something like that. So Duke, I said, Duke, do you know any place I get some pot? He said, Yeah, yeah. He says, I know somebody. I can get you some. He said, uh, Come over to the NCO club tonight at eight or whatever it was, and I'll meet you over there. We we'll have, have a couple of beers and we'll go out. So I, I wound up. Uh, Meeting him over there, we walked out to the south per, southwest perimeter. Uh, there was a sand, there was a bunker out there with sandbags up on the top, and uh, they were all formed in a C shape for for uh, just in case there was an attack, you could hide behind those on top and fire at the enemy. There was guard towers along the wire and everything like that. But we there was four guys sitting up top. We climbed up there and sat down, and one of the guys was passing around a joint, so I, I gave it a shot. 
And it was it was probably one of the nicest evenings I ever spent in Vietnam. The stars were out, sea breeze. It was a beautiful night. We talked about home, about families, about it. All I remember was a great night. Then this then old Duke hits me on the uh, you know gives me an elbow and says, "Hey, uh, it, here's the guy that could help you out." And here comes this guy. He I knew he was a hippie. He had a bandana around his head. He had he had the uh, sunglasses at night you know <laughs> he climbs up on the bag and and we talk a little bit and the next thing he lights up something he says here I want you guys to try this and he passes it down the line as they do with marijuana and it came around to me I was at the end of the line and on the other side from him and I took one hit of this thing again I wasn't a smoker anyway I didn't smoke cigarettes but it's this went into my lungs and went directly to my brain. I mean, I, I thought to myself, my God, what in the name was that? So uh, what was that? And uh, I, I just, I was so dizzy. I rolled off the bunker into the sand, and, and uh, next thing I know, Duke is, jumps off, and he says, are you all right? I said, oh, my God. I said, my head is just totally... Spinning. I uh, I don't what was that? And all of a sudden, the first rocket came in right over us and hit a hooch that was probably fifty yards away or something like that, and just took off the end of the hooch. And uh, that was just the first. But instead of going into the bunker, everybody jumped down and ran in toward the perimeter. Uh, I mean, all I saw was they came flying over me, and I remember sand and boots and butts heading toward the toward the barracks of uh, and the airfield, and I was following, and I was I thought to myself, "What in God's name's going on?" I ran, got up against a, some kind of structure. I don't even remember what it was, and I lay there in the sand because I didn't know where I was. I didn't know where the interior bunkers were or anything and that was and then another rocket comes in uh, i mean it was there was 18 rockets that's what one report one said 22 i i don't remember i wasn't counting but i lay there with my head on the ground in the sand up against this building or structure and i i had a, a tremendous self-taught <laughs> talk it was you know uh thinking to myself what what am I doing and so uh, I I knew before I laid there for 30 minutes or 45 minutes whatever it was uh, when it started to clear I realized that I had to uh, you know I had one mission there it was to get home and make it out of here and uh you know, I thought to myself, uh, you know, stay. F- I need to stay f- focused and stay frosty, stay alert. Don't lose my uh, my focus and be just be aware of what was going on and always be armed. And so I, because all I had with me was a pocket knife, and he, if they came through the wire or through the gates or whatever, I had nothing. I didn't know where I was. I, that was never ever going to happen to me again. It, and to this day, it, it really taught me a, a, a lesson. 
for the rest of my life. I, I, even when I'm in dangerous situations, I always know what's going on, think about the possibilities and things like that. But it's kept me going for a long time. And, you know, I made it back to the world, as they said, uh, uh, and left the Army in 1969. But... Uh, uh, and wound up marrying my girlfriend and went off to college down in Florida, got my commercial instrument rating and all of that kind of stuff, and wound up uh, working in air cargo industry for the rest of my career. And I got a, had a good life and uh, never smoked again. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you tried marijuana that one time, you got rockets, rocketed and you had what they call a come to Jesus uh, a moment. Is that correct? <laughs> <laughs> then some. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't uh, you don't forget that when you get your ear on the ground and uh, the, every time the rocket hits, the sand lifts off the ground slightly <laughs> into your face. So uh, it just uh, makes you aware of, uh, you know, you're in God's hands, as they say. I was sure lucky that Sergeant X had put me in otters. I'll tell you, when I flew up over the clouds and uh, looked down uh, into some of those places uh, out there in uh, Oshaw Valley or along the DMZ and thought about walking through some of that stuff, uh, out by Quezon and uh, down by uh, Loch Ninh and all uh, take, uh, what was that Nui Ba Din, which is a mountain down by Tainin, uh which many aircraft were into the side of that thing because it was just popped up like a pimple on the, on the face of the earth and on cloudy days. We didn't have great navigation systems in Vietnam, so you had to do a lot of pilotage and uh, flying under the clouds and things like that. So you can get in trouble real quick. And there were people that just uh, you know could could get lost in the clouds and couldn't get their way back down. I had some. We flew with some great pilots with these otter guys. <clears throat> Many of them wound off wound up being airline pilots. I never could because when I got back the. Uh, time I got through two years of college, the airlines needed four. When I got four years of college, <coughs> excuse me, they they needed a uh, air transport rating, and I was broke, so I uh, I couldn't. Uh, I, I came to Atlanta looking for a job and wound up uh, getting on with the all cargo airline, the Flying Tiger line, which was later bought by Federal Express, that little small package airline. Yeah. And no one we thought would make it <coughs> except Fred Smith. Yeah. But it, it, uh, you know, flying that otter in Vietnam, uh, you were above the ground, and God bless the ground pounders and, and the Marines and Special Forces guys because they had it so rough. The, uh, all my so-called combat was up in the air. I never had to... Uh, Never had to witness a buddy uh, uh, die before me. You know, all my friends just took off and never came back. Different right. kind of emotion. But uh, I think you and I 
for Vietnam veterans, uh, we're very lucky. Uh, we were. We were. Uh, you were there, what, 14 months? I was, yes. I, I literally extended uh, so I could uh, get right out of the Army and get back to United. Uh, yeah. So I extended for until March of 69. Got home uh, in time for the moon landings and uh, Court and my girlfriend and, and Terry and, uh, and then wound up uh, uh, going, a, uh, driving a truck. I literally, because United, my job had moved down to Dulles Airport down by Washington, D.C., and I wasn't smart enough to buy property down there. I just said, no, nah, I don't want to. <laughs> but I wound up... Uh, I wound up staying in New York, driving a truck, going to college, uh, community college, and then wound up uh, said, "I got to get full time college if I'm ever going to catch up with what they need," and uh, wound up uh, going down to Florida, which was a good thing. Oh, Terry yeah, and I, the boat is always good. Vic, we're going to have to close out here. We're running out of time, but uh, close us out with this thought right here. You told me that you could hear the Marines taking a hill. And, and you got so mad about that because what happened after they would take a hill and, and losing guys? Well, you know, we we would we could listen to okay, Pete, uh, we gotta close combat out. radio. I, I couldn't control it from where I was, but I uh, in the in the plane. But I we could listen on our headsets to uh, what was going on on the ground. Uh, it, it yeah, it was um, it would scare you up. Yeah, so we, I appreciate. Got to go, Vic. Thank you so much, man. Great interview, okay? Thank you for having me, Pete. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.